0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Uh, A couple of quick things before we get started. Number one, this is probably the third time I've started recording this episode. Um, The first two times I encountered a fatal error because this this half of the story has just a metric butt ton of Welsh in it, and I do not speak even a single little bit of Welsh. Um, So... Uh, I had to enlist some help, some help with this, uh, and I contacted literally the only Welsh person I know. And uh, they were able to provide me with a, a, a great sound file pronouncing all of the words that I need to know. So hopefully this will all work out. So very, very big, huge thank you to Naris Howell Um they go by uh, Podnen, P-O-D-N-E-N, on Twitter, and they are the creator, showrunner, writer of, of the podcast, Saren, S-E-R-E-N. Uh, S-E-R-E-N. Uh, you can find them on Twitter, uh, at SarenPod, S-E-R-E-N-P-O-D. Please check it out. It's a really great show that I know you will enjoy. Um, thank you, Naris, for all of the help, and for whatever I get right, thank her. For whatever I get wrong, blame me, because... My stupid American mouth is going to just butcher this language all to hell and back. So I'm sorry in advance to anyone who is Welsh and listening. Um, thank you very much, Nerys, for your help. Secondly, uh, you know, as as always, I know there's a lot of turmoil going on right now. And I know that some people, I don't, I don't know if any of my listeners are, but some people are in pretty ugly financial straits and there's a lot of stress and a lot of, um, pressure. Just please know that whatever situation you're in, you are important and you matter. And I know you're stronger than you think you are. And if you feel like you're in crisis, please reach out to somebody, please talk to somebody, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's the suicide prevention lifeline, you can find their number in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, and let's, uh, Let's uh, just get on with the, with the episode and all of the Welsh that is to come. Yay! Chapter 4. The Ringing of the Bell So far, I have not told the story of the things of Ghentersan, but rather the story of how I stumbled upon them and among them, perplexed and wholly astray, seeking but yet not knowing at all what I sought, bewildered now and again by circumstances which seemed to me wholly inexplicable devoid not so much of the key to the enigma but of the key to the nature of the enigma you cannot begin to solve a puzzle till you know what the puzzle is about yards divided by minutes said the mathematical master to me long ago will give neither pigs sheep nor oxen he was right though his manner on this and on all other occasions was highly offensive This is enough of the personal process, as I may call it, and here follows the story of what happened at Chantresan last summer, the story as I pieced it together at last. It all began, it appears, on a hot day early in last June, so far as I can make out on the first Saturday in the month. There was a deaf old woman, a Mrs. Perry, who lived by herself in a lonely cottage a mile or so from the town. She came into the marketplace early on the Saturday morning in a state of some excitement, and as soon as she had taken up her usual place on the pavement by the churchyard with her ducks and eggs and a very few early potatoes, she began to tell her neighbors about her having heard the sound of a great bell. The good women on each side smiled at one another behind Mrs. Perry's back, for one had to bawl into her ear before she could make out what one meant, and Mrs. Williams, pennycoid, bent over and yelled, "'What bell should that be, Mrs. Perry? "'There's no church near you up at Penthrayu.' "'Do you hear what nonsense she talks?' "'said Mrs. Williams in a low voice to Mrs. Morgan, "'as if she could hear any bell whatever.' "'What makes you talk nonsense yourself?' "'said Mrs. Perry to the amazement of the two women. "'I can hear a bell as well as you, Mrs. Williams, "'and as well as your whispers either.' "'And there is the fact, which is not to be disputed.' though the deductions from it may be open to endless disputations, this old woman, who had been all but stone deaf for twenty years, the defect had always been in her family, could suddenly hear on this June morning as well as anybody else. And her two old friends stared at her, and it was some time before they had appeased her indignation and induced her to talk about the bell. It had happened in the early morning, which was very misty, She had been gathering sage in her garden, high on a round hill, looking over the sea, and there came in her ears a sort of throbbing and singing and trembling, as if there were music coming out of the earth. And then something seemed to break in her head, and all the birds began to sing and make melody together, and the leaves of the poplars round the garden fluttered in the breeze that rose from the sea, and the cock crowed far off at Tween, and the dog barked down in Kemais Valley, But above all these sounds, unheard for so many years, there thrilled the deep enchanting note of the bell, like a bell and a man's voice singing at once. They stared again at her and at one another. Where did it sound from? asked one. It came sailing across the sea, answered Mrs. Perry quite composedly, and I did hear it coming nearer and nearer to the land. Well, indeed, said Mrs. Morgan. It was a ship's bell then, though I can't make out why they would be ringing like that. "'It was not ringing on any ship, Mrs. Morgan,' said Mrs. Perry. "'Then where do you think it was ringing?' "'Amaradoise,' replied Mrs. Perry. "'Now that means in paradise,' and the two others changed the conversation quickly. "'They thought that Mrs. Perry had got back her hearing suddenly. "'Such things did happen now and again, and that the shock had made her a bit queer. "'And this explanation would no doubt have stood its ground if it had not been for other experiences.' Indeed, the local doctor who had treated Mrs. Perry for a dozen years, not for her deafness, which he took to be hopeless and beyond cure, but for a tiresome and recurrent winter cough, sent an account of the case to a colleague at Bristol, suppressing, naturally enough, the reference to paradise. The Bristol physician gave it as his opinion that the symptoms were absolutely what might have been expected. "'You have here, in all probability,' he wrote, "'the sudden breaking down of an old obstruction in the oral passage,' and I should quite expect this process to be accompanied by tinnitus of a pronounced and even violent character. But for the other experiences? As the morning wore on and drew to noon, high market, and to the utmost brightness of that summer day, all the stalls and the streets were full of rumors and of odd faces. Now from one lonely farm, now from another, men and women came and told the story of how they had listened in the early morning with thrilling hearts, "'to the thrilling music of a bell "'that was like no bell ever heard before. "'And it seemed that many people in the town had been roused, "'they knew not how, from sleep, "'waking up, as one of them said, "'as if bells were ringing and the organ playing, "'and a choir of sweet voices singing altogether. "'There were such melodies and songs "'that my heart was full of joy.' "'And a little past noon, "'some fishermen who had been out all night "'returned and brought a wonderful story into the town,' of what they had heard in the mist. And one of them said he had seen something go by at a little distance from his boat. It was all golden and bright, he said, and there was glory about it. Another fisherman declared, there was a song upon the water that was like heaven. And here I would say in parenthesis that on returning to town, I sought out a very old friend of mine, a man who had devoted a lifetime to strange and esoteric studies. I thought that I had a tale that would interest him profoundly But I found that he heard me with a good deal of indifference and at this very point of the sailors stories I remember saying now what do you make of that? Don't you think it's extremely curious and he replied. Oh, i hardly think so Possibly the sailors were lying possibly it happened as they say well that sort of thing has always been happening. I Give my friends opinion. I make no comment on it Let it be noted that there was something remarkable as to the manner in which the sound of the bell was heard, or supposed to be heard. There are no doubt mysteries in sound as in all else. Indeed, I am informed that during one of the horrible outrages that have been perpetrated on London during this autumn, there was an instance of a great block of workmen's dwellings in which the only person who heard the crash of a particular bomb falling was an old deaf woman who had been fast asleep till the moment of the explosion. This is strange enough of a sound that was entirely in the natural and horrible order, and so it was at Lhantresan, where the sound was either a collective auditory hallucination or a manifestation of what is conveniently, if inaccurately, called the supernatural order. For the thrill of the bell did not reach to all ears or hearts. Deaf Mrs. Perry heard it in her lonely cottage garden high above the misty sea, but then, in a farm on the other or western side of Lhantresan, A little child, scarcely three years old, was the only one out of a household of ten people who heard anything. He called out in stammering baby Welsh something that sounded like, Clechair Waur, Clechair Vower," the great bells, the great bells, and his mother wondered what he was talking about. Of the crews of half a dozen trawlers that were swinging from side to side in the mist, not more than four men had any tale to tell. And so it was that for an hour or two, the man who had heard nothing suspected his neighbor who had heard marvels of lying. And it was some time before the mass of evidence coming from all manner of diverse and remote quarters convinced the people that there was a true story here. A might suspect B, his neighbor, of making up a tale, but when C, from some place on the hills five miles away, and D, the fisherman on the waters, each had a like report, then it was clear that something had happened. And even then, as they told me, the signs to be seen upon the people were stranger than the tales told by them and among them. It has struck me that many people, in reading some of the phrases that I have reported, will dismiss them with laughter as very poor and fantastic inventions. Fishermen, they will say, do not speak of a song like heaven or of a glory about it, and I dare say this would be a just enough criticism if I were reporting English fishermen. But, odd though it may be, Wales has not yet lost the last shreds of the Grand Manor, and let it be remembered also that in most cases, such phrases are translated from other language, that is, from the Welsh. So, they come trailing, let us say, fragments of the cloud of glory in their common speech, and so, on this Saturday, they began to display, uneasily enough in many cases, their consciousness that the things that were reported were of their ancient rite and former custom. The comparison is not quite fair, but conceive Hardy's old derby field suddenly waking from long slumber to find himself in a noble 13th-century hall waited on by kneeling pages, smiled on by sweet ladies in silken coda hardy's So, by evening time, there had come to the old people the recollection of stories that their fathers had told them as they sat round the hearth of winter nights fifty, sixty, seventy years ago. Stories of the wonderful bell of Talo Sant, that had sailed across the glassy seas from Zion, that was called a portion of paradise, and the sound of its ringing was like the perpetual choir of the angels. Such things were remembered by the old, and told to the young that evening, in the streets of the town, and in the deep lanes that climbed far hills. The sun went down to the mountain, red with fire like a burnt offering. The sky turned violet, the sea was purple, as one told another, of the wonder that had returned to the land after long ages. Chapter 5. The Rose of Fire It was during the next nine days, counting from that Saturday early in June, the first Saturday in June, as I believe, that Hontrasan and all the regions about became possessed either by an extraordinary set of hallucinations or by a visitation of great marvels. This is not the place to strike the balance between the two possibilities. The evidence is no doubt readily available, and the matter is open to systematic investigation. But this may be said. The ordinary man, in the ordinary passages of his life, accepts in the main the evidence of his senses and is entirely right in doing so. He says that he sees a cow, that he sees a stone wall, and that the cow and the stone wall are there and that is very well for the practical purposes of life. But I believe that the metaphysicians are by no means so easily satisfied as to the reality of the stone wall and the cow. Perhaps they might allow that both objects are there in the sense that one's reflection is in a glass. There is an actuality, but is there a reality external to oneself? In any event, it is solidly agreed that, supposing a real existence, this much is certain. It is not, in the least, like our conception of it. The ant and the microscope will quickly convince us that we do not see things as they really are, even supposing that we see them at all. If we could see the real cow, she would appear utterly incredible. As incredible as the things I am about to relate. Now, there is nothing that I know much more unconvincing than the stories of the red light on the sea. Several sailors... Men on small coasting ships who were working up or down the channel on that Saturday night spoke of seeing the red light, and it must be said that there is a very tolerable agreement in their tales. All make the time as between midnight of the Saturday and one o'clock on the Sunday morning. Two of those sailor men are precise as to the time of the apparition. They fix it by elaborate calculations of their own as occurring at 12.20 a.m. And the story? A red light a burning spark seen far away in the darkness, taken at the first moment of seeing for a signal, and probably an enemy signal. Then it approached at a tremendous speed, and one man said he took it to be the port light of some new kind of navy motorboat which was developing a rate hitherto unheard of, a hundred or a hundred and fifty knots an hour. And then, in the third instant of the sight, it was clear that this was no earthly speed." at first a red spark in the farthest distance then a rushing lamp and then as if in an incredible point of time it swelled into a vast rose of fire that filled all the sea and all the sky and hid the stars and possessed the land i thought the end of the world had come one of the sailors said and then an instant more and it was gone from them and four of them say that there was a red spark on chapel head where the old grey chapel of St. Talos stands, high above the water, in a cleft of the limestone rocks. And thus the sailors, and thus their tales, are incredible, but they are not incredible. I believe that men of the highest eminence in physical science have testified to the occurrence of phenomena every wit is marvellous, to things as absolutely opposed to all natural order as we conceive it, and it may be said that nobody minds them. "'That sort of thing has always been happening,' as my friend remarked to me. "'But the men, whether or no the fire had ever been without them, "'there was no doubt that it was now within them, for it burned in their eyes. "'They were purged as if they had passed through the furnace of the sages, "'governed with wisdom that the alchemists know. "'They spoke without much difficulty of what they had seen, "'or had seemed to see with their eyes, "'but hardly at all of what their hearts had known when, for a moment, "'the glory of the fiery rose had been about them. "'For some weeks afterward they were still, as it were, amazed, "'almost, I would say, incredulous. "'If there had been nothing more than the splendid and fiery appearance, "'showing and vanishing, "'I do believe that they themselves would have discredited their own senses "'and denied the truth of their own tales. "'And one does not dare to say whether they would not have been right. "'Men like Sir William Crooks and Sir Oliver Lodge "'are certainly to be heard with respect,' and they bear witness to all manner of apparent aversions of laws which we, or most of us, consider far more deeply founded than the ancient hills. They may be justified, but in our hearts we doubt. We cannot wholly believe in inner sincerity that the solid table did rise without mechanical reason or cause into the air, and so defy that which we name the law of gravitation. I know what may be said on the other side— I know that there is no true question of law in the case, that the law of gravitation really means just this, that I have never seen a table rising without mechanical aid or an apple detached from the bough soaring to the skies instead of falling to the ground. The so-called law is just the sum of common observation and nothing more. Yet I say in our hearts we do not believe that the tables rise, much less do we believe in the rows of fire that for a moment swallowed up the skies and seas and shores of the welsh coast last june and the men who saw it would have invented fairy tales to account for it i say again if it had not been for that which was within them they said all of them and it was certain now that they spoke the truth that in the moment of the vision every pain and ache and malady in their bodies had passed away one man had been vilely drunk on venomous spirit procured at jobson's hole down by the cardiff docks He was horribly ill. He had crawled up from his bunk for a little fresh air, and in an instant, his horrors and his deadly nausea had left him. Another man was almost desperate with the raging, hammering pain of an abscess on a tooth. He says that when the red flame came near, he felt as if a dull, heavy blow had fallen on his jaw, and then the pain was quite gone. He could scarcely believe that there had been any pain there. And they all bear witness to an extraordinary exaltation of the senses. It is indescribable, this, for they cannot describe it. They are amazed again. They do not in the least profess to know what happened, but there is no more possibility of shaking their evidence than there is a possibility of shaking the evidence of a man who says that water is wet and fire hot. I felt a bit queer afterwards, said one of them. I steadied myself by the mast and... I can't tell how I felt as I touched it. I didn't know that touching a thing like a mask could be better than a big drink when you're thirsty or a soft pillow when you're sleepy. I heard other instances of this state of things, as I must vaguely call it, since I do not know what else to call it. But I suppose we can all agree that, to the man in average health, the average impact of the external world on his senses is a matter of indifference. The average impact, a harsh scream, the bursting of a motor tire... Any violent assault on the aural nerves will annoy him, and he may say, damn. Then, on the other hand, the man who is not fit will easily be annoyed and irritated by someone pushing past him in a crowd, by the ringing of a bell, by the sharp closing of a book. But so far as I could judge from the talk of these sailors, the average impact of the external world had become to them a fountain of pleasure. Their nerves were on edge— but an edge to receive exquisite sensuous impressions the touch of the rough mast for example that was a joy far greater than is the joy of fine silk to some luxurious skins they drank water and stared as if they had been fine gourmet tasting an amazing wine the creak and whine of their ship on its slow way were as exquisite as the rhythm and song of a bach fugue to an amateur of music And then, within, these rough fellows have their quarrels and strifes and variances and envyings, like the rest of us. But that was all over between them that had seen the rosy light. Old enemies shook hands heartily and roared with laughter as they confessed one to another what fools they had been. "'I cannot exactly say how it had happened or what had happened at all,' said one, "'but if you have all the world and the glory of it, how can you fight for fivepence? The Church of Hrentresan is a typical example of a Welsh parish church before the evil and horrible period of restoration. This lower world is a palace of lies, and of all foolish lies, there is none more insane than a certain vague fable about the medieval Freemasons, a fable which somehow imposed itself upon the cold intellect of Hallam the Historian. The story is, in brief, that throughout the Gothic period, at any rate, The art and craft of church-building were executed by wandering guilds of Freemasons, possessed of various secrets of building and adornment, which they employed wherever they went. If this nonsense were true, the Gothic of Cologne would be as the Gothic of Colne, and the Gothic of Arles like the Gothic of Abingdon. It is so grotesquely untrue that almost every county, let alone every country, has its distinctive style in Gothic architecture. Arfon is in the west of Wales, Its churches have marks and features which distinguish them from the churches in the east of Wales. The Hrantresan church has that primitive division between nave and chancel which only very foolish people decline to recognize as equivalent to the oriental iconostasis and as the origin of the western rood screen. A solid wall divided the church into two portions. In the center was a narrow opening with a rounded arch through which those who sat towards the middle of the church could see the small... "'red-carpeted altar, and the three roughly-shaped lancet windows above it. "'The reading pew was on the outer side of this wall of partition, "'and here the rector did his service, "'the choir being grouped in seats about him. "'On the inner side were the pews of certain privileged houses "'of the town and district. "'On the Sunday morning, the people were all in their accustomed places, "'not without a certain exaltation in their eyes, "'not without a certain expectation of they knew not what.' the bells stopped ringing. The rector, in his old-fashioned ample surplice, entered the reading desk and gave out the hymn, My God, and is thy table spread. And as the singing began, all the people who were in the pews within the wall came out of them and streamed through the archway into the nave. They took what places they could find up and down the church, and the rest of the congregation looked at them in amazement. Nobody knew what had happened. "'Those whose seats were next to the aisle tried to peer into the chancel to see what had happened or what was going on there, but somehow the light flamed so brightly from the windows above the altar, those being the only windows in the chancel, one small lancet in the south wall excepted that no one could see anything at all. "'It was as if a veil of gold adorned with jewels was hanging there,' one man said and indeed there are a few odds and scraps of old painted glass left in the eastern lancets. But there were few in the church who did not hear now and again voices speaking beyond the veil. Chapter 6. Olwyn's Dream The well-to-do and dignified personages who left their pews in the chancel of Chantresan Church and came hurrying into the nave, "'could give no explanation of what they had done. "'They felt, they said, that they had to go, and to go quickly. "'They were driven out, as it were, by a secret, irresistible command. "'But all who were present in the church that morning were amazed, "'though all exulted in their hearts, "'for they, like the sailors who saw the rows of fire on the waters, "'were filled with a joy that was literally ineffable, "'since they could not utter it or interpret it to themselves.' and they too, like the sailors, were transmuted, or the world was transmuted for them. They experienced what the doctors call a sense of bien-etre, but a bien-etre raised to the highest power. Old men felt young again, eyes that had been growing dim now saw clearly, and saw a world that was like paradise. The same world, it is true, but a world rectified and glowing, as if an inner flame shone in all things and behind all things. And the difficulty in recording this state is this, that it is so rare in experience that no set language to express it is in existence. A shadow of its raptures and ecstasies is found in the highest poetry. There are phrases in ancient books telling of the Celtic saints that dimly hint at it. Some of the old Italian masters of painting had known it, for the light of it shines in their skies and about the battlements of their cities that are founded on magic hills." but these are but broken hints. It is not poetic to go to Apothecary's Hall for similes, but for many years I kept by me an article from the Lancet or the British Medical Journal, I forget which, in which a doctor gave an account of certain experiments he had conducted with a drug called the Mescal Button, or Anhelonium lewini. He said that while under the influence of the drug, he had but to shut his eyes, and immediately before him There would rise incredible Gothic cathedrals of such majesty and splendor and glory that no heart had ever conceived. They seemed to surge from the depths to the very heights of heaven, their spires swayed amongst the clouds and the stars. They were fretted with admirable imagery, and as he gazed, he would presently become aware that all the stones were living stones, that they were quickening and palpitating, and then they were glowing jewels, say emeralds, sapphires rubies, opals, but of hues that the mortal eye had never seen. That description gives, I think, some faint notion of the nature of the transmuted world into which these people by the sea had entered, a world quickened and glorified and full of pleasures. Joy and wonder were on all faces, but the deepest joy and the greatest wonder were on the face of the rector. For he had heard through the veil the Greek word for holy three times repeated, and he, who had once been a horrified assistant at high mass in a foreign church, recognized the perfume of incense that filled the place from end to end. It was on that Sunday night that Olwen Phillips of Chryswin dreamed her wonderful dream. She was a girl of sixteen, the daughter of small farming people, and for many months she had been doomed to certain death. Consumption, which flourishes in that damp, warm climate, had laid hold of her, Not only her lungs, but her whole system was a mass of tuberculosis. As is common enough, she had enjoyed many fallacious brief recoveries in the early stages of the disease, but all hope had long been over, and now for the last few weeks she had seemed to rush vehemently to death. The doctor had come on the Saturday morning, bringing with him a colleague. They had both agreed that the girl's case was in its last stages. She cannot possibly last more than a day or two, "'said the local doctor to her mother. "'He came again on the Sunday morning "'and found his patient perceptibly worse, "'and soon afterward she sank into a heavy sleep, "'and her mother thought that she would never wake from it. "'The girl slept in an inner room "'communicating with the room occupied by her father and mother. "'The door between was kept open "'so that Mrs. Phillips could hear her daughter "'if she called to her in the night. "'And Olwyn called to her mother that night "'just as the dawn was breaking.' "'It was no faint summons from a dying bed "'that came to the mother's ears, "'but a loud cry that rang through the house, "'a cry of great gladness. "'Mrs. Phillips started up from sleep in wild amazement, "'wondering what could have happened. "'And then she saw Olwyn, "'who had not been able to rise from her bed "'for many weeks past, "'standing in the doorway in the faint light "'of the growing day. "'Mother! Mother, it is all over! "'I am quite well again!' "'Mrs. Phillips roused her husband,' and they sat up in bed, staring, not knowing on earth, as they said afterwards, what had been done with the world. Here was their poor girl, wasted to a shadow, lying on her deathbed, and the life sighing from her with every breath, and her voice, when she last uttered it, so weak that one had to put one's ear to her mouth. And here, in a few hours, she stood up before them, and even in that faint light they could see that she was changed almost beyond knowing, and indeed, Mrs. Phillips said that for a moment or two, she fancied that the Germans must have come and killed them in their sleep, and so they were all dead together. But Olwyn called out again, so the mother lit a candle and got up and went tottering across the room, and there was Olwyn all gay and plump again, smiling with shining eyes. Her mother led her into her own room and set down the candle there and felt her daughter's flesh, and burst into prayers and tears of wonder and delight and thanksgivings, and held the girl again to be sure that she was not deceived. And then Olwyn told her dream, though she thought it was not a dream. She said she woke up in the deep darkness, and she knew the life was fast going from her. She could not move so much as a finger. She tried to cry out, but no sound came from her lips. She felt that in another instant, the whole world would fall from her. Her heart was full of agony, and, as the last breath was passing her lips, she heard a very faint, sweet sound, like the tinkling of a silver bell. It came from far away, from over by teen Nawith. She forgot her agony and listened, and even then, she says, she felt the swirl of the world as it came back to her, and the sound of the bell swelled and grew louder, and it thrilled all through her body, and the life was in it. And as the bell rang and trembled in her ears. "'A faint light touched the wall of her room "'and reddened till the whole room was full of rosy fire. "'And then she saw standing before her bed three men in blood-colored robes with shining faces. "'And one man held a golden bell in his hand, "'and the second man held up something shaped like the top of a table. "'It was like a great jewel, and it was of a blue color, "'and there were rivers of silver and of gold running through it "'and flowing as quick streams flow.' "'and there were pools in it as if violets had been poured out into water. "'And then it was green as the sea near the shore. "'And then it was the sky at night with all the stars shining. "'And then the sun and the moon came down and washed in it. "'And the third man held up high above this a cup that was like a rose on fire. "'There was a great burning in it and a dropping of blood in it "'and a red cloud above it and I saw a great secret.' "'and I heard a voice that sang nine times, "'Glory and praise to the conqueror of death, "'to the fountain of life immortal. "'Then the red light went from the wall, "'and it was all darkness, "'and the bell rang faint again by Capitalo, "'and then I got up and called to you.' "'The doctor came on the Monday morning "'with the death certificate in his pocketbook, "'and Olwyn ran out to meet him. "'I have quoted his phrase in the first chapter of this record.' "'a kind of resurrection of the body. "'He made a most careful examination of the girl. "'He has stated that he found "'that every trace of disease had disappeared. "'He left on the Sunday morning "'a patient entering into the coma that precedes death, "'a body condemned utterly and ready for the grave. "'He met at the garden gate on the Monday morning "'a young woman in whom life sprang up like a fountain, "'in whose body life laughed and rejoiced "'as if it had been a river flowing from an unending well.' Now, this is the place to ask one of those questions. There are many such which cannot be answered. The question is as to the continuance of tradition, more especially as to the continuance of tradition among the Welsh Celts of today. On the other hand, such waves and storms have gone over them. The wave of the heathen Saxons went over them, then the wave of Latin medievalism, then the waters of Anglicanism, Last of all, the flood of their queer Calvinistic Methodism, half Puritan, half pagan. It may well be asked whether any memory can possibly have survived such a series of deluges. I have said that the old people of Chlantrasan had their tales of the Bell of talosant Sant, but these were but vague and broken recollections. And then there is the name by which the strangers who were seen in this marketplace were known. That is more precise. Students of the Grail legend know that the keeper of the Grail in the Romances is the King Fisherman or the Rich Fisherman. Students of Celtic Hagiology know that it was prophesied before the birth of David that he should be a man of aquatic life, that another legend tells how a little child, destined to be a saint, was discovered on a stone in the river, how through his childhood a fish for his nourishment was found on that stone every day, while another saint, Elar, if I remember, was expressly known as the Fisherman. But has the memory of all this persisted in the church-going and chapel-going people of Wales at the present day? It is difficult to say. There is the affair of the healing cup of Nanteos, or Tregaron healing cup as it is also called. It is only a few years since it was shown to a wandering harper who treated it lightly, and then spent a wretched night, as he said, and came back penitently and was left alone with the sacred vessel to pray over it, till his mind was at rest. That was in 1887. Then, for my part, I only know modern Wales on the surface, I'm sorry to say. I remember three or four years ago speaking to my temporary landlord of certain relics of St. Talo, which are supposed to be in the keeping of a particular family in that country. The landlord is a very jovial merry fellow, and I observed with some astonishment that his ordinary easy manner was completely altered, as he said gravely. That will be over there, up by the mountains, pointing vaguely to the north, and he changed the subject, as a Freemason changes the subject. There, the matter lies, and its oppositeness to the story of Chantresan is this, that the dream of Olwyn Phillips was, in fact, the vision of the Holy Grail. Chapter 7. The Mass of the Sand Grail "'Feriadwer Melchisedec! "'Feriadwer Melchisedec!' shouted the old Calvinistic Methodist deacon with the gray beard. "'Priesthood of Melchizedek "'Priesthood of Melchisedec!' "'And he went on. "'The bell that is like aglois a rangal a maradois, "'the joy of the angels in paradise, is returned. "'The altar that is of a color that no man can discern is returned. "'The cup that came from Zion is returned.' The ancient offering is restored. The three saints have come back to the church of the Tree Saint. The three holy fishermen are amongst us, and their net is full. Goganiant, Goganiant, glory, glory. Then another Methodist began to recite in Welsh a verse from Wesley's hymn: "God still respects thy sacrifice; its savour sweet doth always please. The offering smokes through earth and skies." diffusing life and joy in peace. To these thy lower courts it comes and fills them with divine perfumes. The whole church was full, as the old books tell, of the odor of the rarest spiceries. There were lights shining within the sanctuary through the narrow archway. This was the beginning of the end of what befell at chantresan "'for it was the Sunday after that night "'on which Olwyn Phillips had been restored from death to life. "'There was not a single chapel of the dissenters open in the town that day. "'The Methodists, with their minister and their deacons, "'and all the nonconformists, "'had returned on this Sunday morning to the old hive. "'One would have said, a church of the Middle Ages, "'a church in Ireland today. "'Every seat, save those in the chancel, was full. "'All the aisles were full. "'The churchyard was full.' "'everyone on his knees, "'and the old rector kneeling before the door "'into the holy place. "'Yet they can say but very little "'of what was done beyond the veil. "'There was no attempt to perform the usual service. "'When the bells had stopped, "'the old deacon raised his cry, "'and priest and people fell down on their knees "'as they thought they heard a choir within "'singing Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. "'And as the bells in their towers ceased ringing,' There sounded the thrill of the bell from Zion and the golden veil of sunlight fell across the door into the altar and the heavenly voices began their melodies a voice like a trumpet cried from within the brightness agios 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 and the people as if an age-old memory stirred in them replied er tad. agios ertad agios ermab agios ira spread glansant SANT, SANT, GINDAD, SANT VENDIGADE, SANCTUS OGLOITHE THEUS sabeoth, DOMINUS DEUS. There was a voice that cried and sang from within the altar. Most of the people had heard some faint echo of it in the chapels, a voice rising and falling and soaring in awful modulations that rang like the trumpet of the last angel. The people beat upon their breasts. The tears were like rain of the mountains on their cheeks. Those that were able fell down flat on their faces before the glory of the veil. They said afterwards that men of the hills, twenty miles away, heard that cry and that singing roaring upon them on the wind. They said afterwards that men on the hills, twenty miles away, heard that cry and that singing roaring upon them on the wind, and they fell down on their faces and cried, The offering is accomplished, knowing nothing of what they said. There were a few who saw three come out of the door of the sanctuary, and stand for a moment on the pace before the door. These three were in dyed vesture, red as blood. One stood before two, looking to the west, and he rang the bell. And they say that all the birds of the wood, and all the waters of the sea, and all the leaves of the trees, and all the winds of the high rocks uttered their voices with the ringing of the bell. And the second and the third. They turned their faces one to another. The second held up the lost altar that they once called Sapphirus, which was like the changing of the sea and of the sky, and like the admixture of gold and silver. And the third heaved up high over the altar a cup that was red with burning and the blood of the offering. And the old rector cried aloud then before the entrance, Bendigade, erroferen, and isiseth "'Blessed be the offering unto the age of ages!' And then the Mass of the Sangral was ended, and then began the passing out of that land of the holy persons and the holy things that had returned to it after the long years. It seemed indeed to many that the thrilling sound of the bell was in their ears for days, even for weeks after that Sunday morning. But thenceforth neither bell nor altar nor cup was seen by anyone, Not openly, that is, but only in dreams by day and by night. Nor did the people see strangers again in the markets of Hlantresan, nor in the lonely places where certain persons, oppressed by great affliction and sorrow, had once or twice encountered them. But that time of visitation will never be forgotten by the people. Many things happened in the nine days that have not been set down in this record, or legend. Some of them were trifling matters, though strange enough in other times. Thus, a man in the town who had a fierce dog that was always kept chained up found one day that the beast had become mild and gentle. And this is Otter. Edward Davies of Lanifun, a farmer, was roused from sleep one night by a queer yelping and barking in his yard. He looked out of the window and saw his sheep dog playing with a big fox. They were chasing each other by turns, rolling over and over one another, "'Cutting such capers as I never did see the like,' "'as the astonished farmer put it. "'And some of the people said that during this season of wonder "'the corn shot up and the grass thickened, "'and the fruit was multiplied on the trees in a very marvellous manner.' "'More important, it seemed, was the case of Williams, the grocer, "'though this may have been a purely natural deliverance. "'Mr. Williams was to marry his daughter Mary "'to a smart young fellow from Carmarthen, "'and he was in great distress over it. "'Not over the marriage itself, but because things had been going very badly with him for some time, and he could not see his way to giving anything like the wedding entertainment that would be expected of him. The wedding was to be on the Saturday. That was the day on which the lawyer, Louis Prothero, and the farmer, Philip James, were reconciled, and this John Williams, without money or credit, could not think how shame would not be on him for the meagerness and poverty of the wedding feast. And then, on the Tuesday, came a letter from his brother, David Williams, Australia, "'from whom he had not heard for fifteen years. "'And David, it seemed, had been making a great deal of money, "'and was a bachelor, and here was with his letter "'a paper good for a thousand pounds. "'You may as well enjoy it now as wait till I am dead.' "'This was enough, indeed, one might say. "'But hardly an hour after the letter had come, "'the lady from the big house, Place Maure, "'drove up in all her grandeur and went into the shop and said, "'Mr. Williams, your daughter Mary has always been a very good girl, "'and my husband and I feel that we must give her some little thing on her wedding, "'and we hope she'll be very happy.' "'It was a gold watch, worth fifteen pounds. "'And after Lady Watkin advances the old doctor with a dozen of port, forty years upon it, and a long sermon on how to decant it. "'And the old rector's old wife brings to the beautiful dark girl two yards of creamy lace like an enchantment for her wedding veil.' and tells Mary how she wore it for her own wedding 50 years ago. And the squire, Sir Watkin, as if his wife had not been already with a fine gift, calls from his horse and brings out Williams, and barks like a dog at him. Going to have a wedding, eh, Williams? Can't have a wedding without champagne, you know? Wouldn't be legal, don't you know? So, look out for a couple of cases. So, Williams tells the story of the gifts, and certainly there was never so famous a wedding in Lhantresan before. All this, of course may have been altogether in the natural order. The glow, as they call it, seems more difficult to explain, for they say that all through the nine days, and indeed after the time had ended, there never was a man weary or sick at heart in Khantrasan, or in the country round it. For if a man felt that his work of the body or of the mind was going to be too much for his strength, there would come to him of a sudden a warm glow and a thrilling all over him, and he felt as strong as a giant and happier than he had ever been in his life before, so that Lawyer and Hedger each rejoiced in the task that was before him, as if it were sport and play. And much more wonderful than this or any other wonders was forgiveness with love to follow it. There were meetings of old enemies in the marketplace and in the street that made the people lift up their hands and declare that it was as if one walked the miraculous streets of Sion. But as to the phenomena the occurrences for which, in ordinary talk, we should reserve the word miraculous? Well, what do we know? The question that I have already stated comes up again as to the possible survival of old tradition in a kind of dormant or torpid semi-conscious state. In other words, did the people see and hear what they expected to see and hear? This point, or one similar to it, occurred in a debate between Andrew Lang and Anatole France as to the visions of Joan of Arc. Monsieur France stated that when Joan saw Saint Michael, she saw the traditional archangel of the religious art of her day. But to the best of my belief, Andrew Lang proved that the visionary figure Joan described was not in the least like the 15th century conception of Saint Michael. So, in the case of Hrantresan, I have stated that there was a sort of "'tradition about the Holy Bell of Sant, "'And it is, of course, barely possible "'that some vague notion of the Grail Cup "'may have reached even Welsh country folks "'through Tennyson's idols. "'But so far I see no reason to suppose "'that these people have ever heard of the portable altar "'called Sapphirus in William of Malmesbury, "'or of its changing colors that no man could discern. "'And then there are the other questions "'of the distinction between hallucination and vision,' of the average duration of one and the other, and of the possibility of collective hallucination. If a number of people all see, or think they see, the same appearance, can this be merely hallucination? I believe there is a leading case on the matter which concerns a number of people seeing the same appearance on a church wall in Ireland. But there is, of course, this difficulty, that one may be hallucinated and communicate his impression to the others telepathically. But... At the last, what do we know? And that is the end of The Great Return by Arthur Mackin. Thank you all so much for listening. An extra special thanks to Nerys Howell for helping me with the Welsh on that. Again, I apologize for the horrible butchering I gave it. Um, I, I know I didn't do it perfectly. For everything that I got right, um, thank her. For everything I got wrong, blame me. That's That's all on me um thank you all so much for listening please feel free to support me on patreon uh patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast um i really appreciate everybody who has uh who has kicked in so far matthias hansen and alder riley uh eric braun um thank you all so much i really appreciate it um please feel free to pick up into the black by william meikle it's on audible.com it is read by me 14 tales of lovecraftian horror all of them are excellent Feel free to leave me a rating and a return, rating and a return. That's not right. Feel free to leave me a rating and a review on iTunes and I will see you next week. Da 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 Here's the bloops. To, um, Neris Howell. Is that, oh, is it Howell? Please tell me it's Howell because if it's not Howell, I'm going to feel super bad. Uh, apparently my computer just decided it didn't want to connect to the internet anymore. So here we are. I'm going to go with Nerys Howell and hope that's right. Indeed, I am informed that during one of the horrible outages that have been perpetrated on London during this autumn, there was an instance of a great block of workmen's dwellings in which the only person who heard the crash of a particular bomb falling was... Outrages. Outrages in London. Not outages in London. (sighs) Ah. I hate when I read over a word and then like three sentences later just happen to glance back and see that I read the wrong word and then I got to go back and fix the whole dang thing. Uh. Perhaps they might allow that both objects are there in the sense that one's reflection is in a glass. There is an actuality, but is there... Perhaps they might allow that both objects are there in the sense that, okay, maybe if I read all of the words, the sentences will make sense. The solid table did rise without mechanical, we cannot wholly believe in, I don't, I don't want to read it anymore. <laughs> I don't want to read anymore. I, I just... I don't want to read. The rector, in his old-fashioned ample surplus, entered... In which a doctor gave an account of certain experiments he had conducted with a drug called the mescal button, or anhelonium lewini. anhelonium le... Lewini. Anholonium lewini in which a doctor gave an account of certain experiments he had conducted with a drug called the mescal button, or anhelonium lewini. Anhelonium lewini. 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 And Olwen called to her mother that night, just as the dawn was breaking. I don't know if you could hear that weird noise that my body just made, but let's redo that sentence. The girl called to her mother. Ma'am, ma'am, it is all over. I'm quite well again. That was Irish. I don't know what the hell kind of accent that was. It's because the word is ma'am and it's... Chapter 7 The Mass of the Sangral Sangrail Chapter 7 The Mass of the Sangraal Sangrail Just say Sangrail Chapter 7 the Mass of the Sand Grail. Agios er tad, Agios er mab, Agios ira spread gan sant, Agios er tad, Agios er mab, Agios ira spread gan sant, 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 drindad sant vendigade sanctus agluth, ah, agluith, deu theu dominus deus. I'm going to take this text and make it bigger so I can read it and try that again. In fact, let's just do that with the rest. The rest of the story. Agios Ertad, Agios Er Mab, Agios era spread gun. Sent sent sent. Drindod Sant Vendigade Sanctus Ogloit Sanctus agloith theu Dominus Deus <sighs> I left a word out, and now I get to go back and do that all over again, Sabeoth. Agios Ertad, Agios Ermab, Agios ira spread Glan Sant, Sant Sant, Drindad Sant Vendigade, Sanctus Agloithe Theu Sabeoth Dominus Deus.